You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. This episode is part two of an episode that was originally titled A Long Journey from Marxists to Marx. The first part of this podcast aired as episode five of Radio Free Humanity back in November. And we meant to air part two sooner, but the press of current events demanded that we release podcasts about the uprising in Lebanon and the UK elections in December, meaning that part two of this interview had to wait until the new year for its release. In the first part of this podcast, Andrew Kleiman interviewed me, Brandon Cooney, about my political evolution from my early days as a YouTube Marxist to the present, and then we got on to the topic of my slow disillusionment with the work of David Harvey. In this episode, we continue the discussion about David Harvey, getting into a meteor critique of his notion of crisis theory. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. Please also consider making a donation on the website. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In just a moment, you will be listening to Andrew interview me. But first, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. We're kicking off this first current events section of the new year with a discussion of the current state of impeachment. And I'm sure we will return to this topic a lot uh, this year. In a surprise move late in December, Nancy Pelosi announced that she will not deliver the articles of impeachment to the Senate until she has some assurances that there will be a fair Senate trial. Uh, Andrew, what do you think of this strategy? Well, I think it's it's completely brilliant. I mean, as as a tactical move, uh, I've rarely encountered anything so brilliant. Um, <laughs> and I mean, you know, we didn't really see this coming. There were a few hints prior to uh, her announcement, but this definitely keeps the the heat on Trump. And I think that that is, you know, whether they get witnesses, they don't get witnesses. They're able to, to keep the heat on Trump. Uh, they're able to both prevent what Trump's own preferred strategy would be, which would be to drag uh, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and uh, everybody before the Senate and, you know, prosecute one of their conspiratorial cases. Uh, or the McConnell strategy, which is, God, this is not good for the Republicans in the Senate and their re-election chances, so let's have this done in 15 minutes and then, then go eat lunch, right? By, by dragging this out and essentially making it a matter of negotiation and by reorienting the whole dispute about process and saying you're not the one being fair, it's becoming very uh, palpable by means of the strategy that there's a cover-up going on, you know, and that's the real underlying story of all of this. You know, the Mueller report, he didn't find out everything, you know, well, why not? You know, why didn't he find criminal activity, you know, between the, the Putinites and the Trumpites? Well, because people lied and Donald Trump said, I don't remember in written papers, right? But Mulder said, look, you know, people were lying to me and I, I, I couldn't get a lot of information. And rather than, you know, wait until 
10 years from now, I, I released the report. So, you know, that keeps happening again and again. You know, and the Republicans are saying, you know, like Jonathan Turley gets up, uh, you know, the Republican constitutional expert, you don't really have a case here because of blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay, but your side has been obstructing the production of uh, documents and, and the testimony of witnesses. Th- this makes it palpably clear. And I don't know whether the, the Democrats will get their witnesses in the end. Um, but any time Donald Trump is on the defensive and having to respond to what other people are doing is, is very good. Yeah, and it seems like uh, you know Pelosi's plan has opened up this potential place for some kind of mini gestures of fractures or dissent within the Republican Senate's firewall, which seemed impenetrable. We now have um, these sort of gestures of discontent from Murkowski and Collins saying they don't agree with uh, McConnell's plan for the Senate trial. I don't think those kind of statements would have been made if it hadn't been for Pelosi's strategy. It certainly would not have happened. I mean, you know, it, 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 it comes out 10 days after she pulls this stunt. If, if she had sent it over immediately, uh, the whole thing would have probably been wrapped up but, but by now. And Collins, Murkowski, God knows who, you know, it would have been a done deal. There would be no reason for them to speak up. They're, they're, they're speaking up because they're caught on the horns of, between the horns of, of, of a dilemma, right? So, you know, I mean, that's part of this, the strategy here, win or lose in terms of getting witnesses. The Democratic strategy is part of it is to force the hand of these Republicans in purple states, uh, you know, in the Senate, people who have uh, problems, both if they go against the Trumpites or if they, they don't go against the Trumpites. I mean, most of the Republicans are in the, um, the, the, the other situation, you know, they're in very, you know, red uh, states. And so they stand to lose if they deviate one iota from what what Trump wants. But there's a handful of them that are in this other situation. I mean, probably Collins is uh, the foremost one, but, you know, but there are others. So so basically, the Democratic strategy is, is at minimum to try to force a vote in the Senate, you know, whether you're going to have witnesses and actually have a fair trial. And that's really, really a tough vote for anybody to have to vote against a fair trial. You know, this is, I, I, I'm amazed by the brilliance of this strategy because it just seems to work so well on so many levels. Now, the other interesting defection from the Trump camp recently came in the form of this editorial in Christianity Today, a publication I have to say I'd never heard of before, but apparently is a very prominent publication in the evangelical world, founded by Billy Graham, I believe. And the editorial made a lot of headlines because it called for a removal of Trump from office and really castigated uh, some of his amoral behavior. And while a lot of evangelical pastors rallied in support of Trump after the article came out, um, the magazine did say that they had a huge increase in subscribers after the article and a lot of positive comments from evangelicals who supported their position. And many are speculating as to what this means for the Trump base and Trump's uh, fervent support amongst evangelicals, whether this might signal some break in that. Yes, there is the split, but 
we can't forget that what happened in 2016 was that the evangelicals leadership by and large really did not like trump okay these people fell in line because their base was four square behind trump and they they just said oh my god what are we going to do you know we, we have to run to catch up to stay uh, in in front and be the leadership you know they, they were they were afraid quite rightly that their base would abandon them because their base doesn't care about personal morality and following the example and teachings of jesus christ you know they care about uh anti-immigration and they care about uh, anti-women policies and you know anti-gay policies that's that's what they care about these social policies connected with supposed evangelicism you know in in white uh church schools and and and, and so forth uh so i mean look there's always a split in the in the evangelical community because some of it's black right and some of it's liberal um but the the base of people who call themselves evangelical they are they're not they're not going to move right so what we're seeing i think with this evangelical split is the same same kind of thing we see all along wherein you get this like uh, in republican and conservative circles you get this never trump phenomenon you know and some of the big name intellectuals uh split off and they are no longer republicans they become independents and they become commentators on msnbc and they get fired from uh, you know their publication and they start a new publication that's the, the the think tank people that's the, the the intellectual leadership uh the people who are closer to the money and to the base and so forth they all move uh you know they, they sometimes gradually sometimes with mis- misgivings but they lined up behind uh trumpism because they saw where the money was going and where the base was going uh so i i think we're seeing the same thing um, and, you know, there are certain people who will, at every moment, you know, they will say, look, I've had enough. I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. But it just seems to me that, like, you've got an unshakable base that knows what it wants, and it's getting it from Donald Trump, and it's just not going to move because, you know, Christian morality and all of this is not what they're really about. Yeah, I think some of what you're saying about this, uh, the dynamically reactionary base and this leadership, which is... So just responding to that and trying to stay on top of the politics uh, in the base, the sort of authoritarian, reactionary politics of the base, is somewhat brought out in the Christianity Today editorial. While the editor who wrote the piece um, goes on about Trump's moral failings, um, those moral failings don't include the aspects of Trumpism that I would consider to be the most important. Uh, egregious moral failings, things like his white nationalism, his anti-immigration policies, his acceleration of climate change, you know, the actual like, crucial social issues that, that go to the heart of you know, the anti-scientism. Uh, those kind of things are completely uh, swept under the table because I presumably those bringing up those criticisms of Trump would, would antagonize a lot of the evangelical base. But you know, this whole dust-up around this Christianity Today article makes me realize how little I understand the politics and culture of that world. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because we we focus a lot like on Fox News and, you know, conservative talk radio 
as things that generate a particular, you know, what counter-narrative, you know, bubble, uh, or, you know, like right-wing social media. But I started to, in light of the controversy surrounding the Christianity today, you know, people are saying you got to focus also on on these these Christian academies, these these schools that a lot of these people have gone to for a couple generations now, and the indoctrination that comes from from that. So you know, you got the pastors, you got the schools, you got uh, a mindset that just gets reinforced uh, again and again. Yeah, I mean, it seems like in this current era of post-truth, there's a lot of focus on. Uh, social media and its ability to create these distinct silos of culture and with people's own distinct uh, idea of what facts and reality are. But, you know, in this country, the religious right and um, AM radio were were sort of creating those alternate realities uh, for decades before the advent of social media. Uh, Social media served only to amplify the work that was already done with you know the religious homeschool movement, with all the sort of reactionary politics of the evangelical church, with their like magical thinking and speaking in tongues, and uh, their anti-scientism, their um, sort of celebrity pastors and celebrity Christian rock stars, uh, their sort of extremely repressive sexual politics, all of which just create a very populist and and um, an angry base that's ripe for the era of Trumpism and ripe for the sort of reactionary manipulation that happens in, in the current social media space. I don't know what words you use, but you're, you, but you're referring to this rebellion against reason, you know, and modernity. Um, and I, I think this is a really big, big issue. And obviously there are lots of things wrong with the capitalist secular world and, 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 and so forth. But to, 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 to go back to a, a, a past, even an imagined past, a past that the even worse is, is not the way to go. But, you know, what I'm reminded of is Eric Fromm and his thesis about escaping from freedom. You know, that's what a lot of people seem to want. And it's, it's very worrisome to me. To me, to me, it's extremely worrisome, and actually, the the, the whole uh, issue with the impeachment of Trump and people saying, "Well, let the voters decide." It's just we're coming to the end of, uh, of of something here, and I think it's actually over. You know, like liberal democracy, but maybe that's something for for another segment. But it it really is like it, it, to let the voters decide is a form of populism, and populism is a th- form of authoritarianism, anti-reason, manipulation by, by demagogues and, you know, the, the super rich. I, I, I try to look for something encouraging, and the only encouraging thing I ever see is just there, there is implacable resistance, you know, from some quarters to normalizing any aspect of this. And that's the only hopeful sign, you know. We're talking, you know, millions upon millions of people who are not going to take this lying down, but still... You know, we're getting our asses kicked again and again and again. Well, we're going to have to leave our current events discussion at that. In just a moment, Andrew and I will continue uh, with part two of our discussion about David Harvey.
When we last left this interview, Andrew and I were discussing David Harvey's theory of crisis, and that is where we pick up here. But let me ask you about the other the other side of that, the, the, the theoretical content. So David Harvey is kind of eclectic because he's trying to produce, I guess, a theory of everything. Um, but you said that there was a certain strong similarity between his uh, understanding of um, economic crisis and that of the monthly review school. Would you say that that's an important element of his thinking? Yeah, that's that's something I'm it's still a bit of a mystery to me, actually. Um, you know, if you read Limits to Capital, Harvey's first book he talks about baron and sweezy the, the 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 you know the sort of founders of the monthly review school a lot they seem to be pretty influential in the way he's reinterpreting marx's categories um and then he comes up with this theory of over accumulation which is like his theory of crisis which most of his writing is then based around like i'd said before um and it's it's very similar in style and 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 the words it uses to um the monthly review school but it's it also sort of it's you know David's Harvey's own unique um, spin on it, so it's not exactly the same, but it, it operates in a lot of the same way. It's basically it's um, claiming that the real problem for capitalism isn't that there is a tendential fall in the rate of profit, um, but it is that there's a basic capital surplus absorption problem. That capital creates profits and then has to figure out what to do with all this money, and so the problem is that there's too much capital, and capital is always trying to find new places to invest it, and that. Um, so for the monthly review school, this this pro this problem happens. Usually, the monthly review school is under consumptionist, right? And it's take so it's saying that the the barriers to this capital being absorbed is that the working class doesn't have enough money because their wages are not high enough. For David Harvey, it's that it's multi causal. That yes, wages might be low, but also there might be uh, problems with the flow of capital through space and time because of temporal space time uh, disturbances. Um, and so anything can be a cause of crisis because it might block the flow of capital through space and time. Um, so he's, he's almost like he's taking the monthly review approach and just making it even turning into like a, a multi-causal uh, theory of everything. Right. Uh, although the Baron Sweezy formulation um, is actually a theory of everything as well, you know, they kind of uh, put their stamp on on that um, 1965 or 64 when, when, when the book Monopoly Capital came out because they run into what would seem to most of us to be a really embarrassing place in their theory where they're predicting capitalism being in continual crisis uh, such that, you know, we should have expected it to collapse, you know, before any of us were born, and I'm older than you. So the theoretical problem that they then uh, face is, how do you explain that the damn thing still exists? Um, and here they come to one, the other, the third, the fourth, the 17th, um, kind of ad hoc seat of the pants. Uh, I can't remember what they call it, but, you know, factor by which uh, the, the capitalists are able to, you know, delay the, the moment of final crisis and, and collapse. So kind of everything that actually happens in the world uh, can be slotted into, okay, this is a thing that is uh, delaying, preventing, holding back the um, eventual fall of capitalism due to this alleged over-accumulation problem. So that, that kind of explanatory um, framework, you know, is, is, is very prominent there in, in, in Monopoly Capital. And, 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 you know, in the latter chapters of the book, there are 
they're 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 doing a lot of that. They're they're talking about you know the urban crisis in the United States, you know racial problems. They're talking about militarism. They're talking about advertising. They're I mean you know yeah, that's definitely the same flavor as Harvey's approach. And then as well, Harvey is very taken up with the regulation school approach to uh, theorizing capitalist history and capitalist societies. In the second book, The Conditions of Postmodernity, that's sort of the dominant <clears throat> theme of the book, um, that different periods of capitalist society solve this overaccumulation problem through a certain mode of regulation that describes all of the productive and consumption habits and political and philosophical ideas. It really becomes a theory of everything uh, on steroids. Um, but I think that seems to me, I think, different than the monthly review school. I don't think of them as being necessarily... Uh, regulation theory? Uh, yeah, as far as I know, I mean, just the cr- chronologically, Bur- Baron and Sweezy precede that. Pre- precede, yeah, they predate that. But I mean, I'm thinking the contemporary Bellamy Foster. Yeah, and- um, I'm trying to think, you know, about like what uh, John Bellamy Foster says. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't really know the relationship between the two. But I, I should say, for all of my disagreements with it, um, the, the, the regulation or regulation school is doing something more than just trying to label. What they're trying, what, what, the, what the, the claim is, is that um, the accumulation of capital needs a whole set of conditions. Um, and that's the mode or what certain people in you know the United States call the social structure uh, of accumulation. It's basically the same thing. Um, and these conditions for a time work together um, to create a stable environment in which investment can take place, accumulation can proceed. So you need a whole institute set of institutional structures for capitalism, you know, to function smoothly but then any any mode of regulation uh encounters contradictions it begins to break down and at that point you know the, the system would just collapse or come to a standstill without a new mode of regulation so there's there's a search and an attempt to reconstruct uh basically the totality of the political economy uh in new terms and so you get these points about fordism post fordism and and so forth so it, it, it's it's actually extremely ambitious uh, um, but it again is a theory of everything just by virtue of this claim that kind of everything needs to fit together for the conditions um, to exist to permit uh, a healthy level of uh, capital investment. In any case, Harvey has got basically this view of overaccumulation. What I want to know from you is how you understand the exact relationship between what he's saying and what, like, Veron and Sweezy have said, and your, your problems with with Harvey's version. Let me let me first of all say that when Marx talks about overaccumulation, I, I think it's invariably. I, I would I would be willing to come out on a podcast and say it is invariably because I, I I cannot remember any. Um, exceptions to this. The overaccumulation is a particular phase of basically a cyclical phenomenon, the business cycle, the boom and bust of the capitalist economy. And the overaccumulation uh, refers to the, the phase uh, of crisis right before the downturn in the economy. 
So it's not a chronic condition that plagues capitalism, you know, every day. It's just another way of talking about suddenly there's a lack of demand. Demand for consumer goods and services, demand for investment goods, machinery, and so forth. So guess what? The stuff piles up on the shelves and in the warehouses. It's been over-accumulated. So it's a, it's a way just of describing in somewhat different terms um, excess supply, which is the flip side of inadequate demand, which is not chronic in Marx's view but it occurs uh, at particular moments of, 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 or one particular moment of a recurrent cycle. Yeah. You, you would agree with that? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so what does the term overaccumulation become in Harvey's hands? Well, uh, for Harvey, there is a chronic problem for capital of overaccumulation in the sense that capitalists make profits and then they have to find where to reinvest those profits. And because there are all these different moments in the circuit of capital where the capital could not return back to its investors due to all sorts of things, whether they're problems in circulation or production, um, that uh, this is a chronic problem of of having too much profits and the cap that and that that the the sort of dynamism of a capitalist society its growth is a product of this um, crisis of overaccumulation that's like an, a chronic state. That's that's the I think that's the best I can rattle off an explanation off the top of my head. Okay, and what makes it chronic? Because there's always um, profit to be reinvested. And why is it always the case that there are difficulties with the profitable reinvestment of profit? That's where I think the whole thing falls apart. Oh, good. We got to uh, it quickly. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because uh, I feel like, you know, I have a vague memory of the first time reading um, David Harvey's book, The Condition of Postmodernity, and that was the one thing I didn't quite get about the book. Um, it was a very, but I think I brushed my concerns aside because it seemed to be explaining so much, the book. Said that mm -hmm. aside, I didn't quite understand why it would be a problem to have too much capital. I mean, it only really makes sense if you can't find a profitable place to invest the money. Correct, correct. So, so, um, so, what, so there has what, to be some theory of profit. It, so what supposedly makes it a chronic condition that you can't find a sufficiently profitable outlet to reinvest your profit? You're, you're telling me Harvey does not say? No, I don't think he actually says why it's chronic. Okay. I think he just says because there are all these different places where problems can occur. Okay. Sure. Uh, but there are hedging strategies uh and there are risk premiums uh for more risky investment and there are all kinds of analysts who um are paid to assess the risks and we know they do engage in lots of investment and we also know that uh the, the investment the capitalists engage in uh sometimes is rather strong at other times it's weaker does he have any explanation of that pattern and those differences. Why is why is investment spending strong at some points? Uh, to the best of my memory, and I don't know if he really addresses that kind of question directly, but I think the general line of explanation is like can sort of historically contingent based upon various factors in the circuit of capital at different historical periods. Harvey, Harvey seems to give us no explanation for the alleged chronic problem of overaccumulation. Might he be just taking as read, taking for granted that uh, the way that Baran and Sweezy tried to explain it succeeded, that, that they were right? Uh, 
Yeah, it very well might be. Yeah. Does, does do you recall him saying something like that or or, or whatever? I, I don't want to go on record, um, you know, speaking for Harvey on that particular question because I would have to go back and reconstruct his or reread his statements about that more clearly. I, I think it's just maybe just safe enough to say that there's a lot of similarity in the 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 way he uses the term overaccumulation to explain um, the dynamics of capitalism. Um, so he's at least borrowing a lot from them, if even if there might be some differences. I mean, it, it, it's it's actually kind of difficult. For, for me to assess this because uh, in the space of just a couple of years, uh, he said pretty contradictory things. Uh, yeah. I mean, if we're getting into his contemporary statements about uh, this stuff, it's then it's I think it's harder to read because he seems to say, even within one book, he'll say things that seem to be self-contradicting. So it's hard to... Right. It's hard to make sense of his more recent statements on these things right um so what you know when i was writing that response to him um i came across uh, a lecture he had given a paper probably it was both uh from only a few years couple of years before where he actually did a fairly good job i thought of explaining um what marx was saying in this very famous and much misunderstood and misrepresented uh passage where marx says the ultimate cause of all real crises uh, is the limited consumption of the masses. Uh, and underconsumptionist after underconsumptionist has trotted out this sentence, uh, taking it totally out of context to say that Marx had an underconsumptionist theory of, of crisis. And Har Harvey, you know, did, did I thought, a, a pretty careful um, reading and explication of the real sense of, of the passage in which, in, in which that, that, that sentence comes. But then um, when he is critiquing the allegedly monocausal theory of crisis that flows from Marx's law of the potential fall in the rate of profit, he invokes what I see, you know, it, it, it was straight Baron and Sweezy. It was straight monopoly capital uh, under consumption theory. Um, so, um, and he kind of attributed that to Marx as well. So uh, he may have even quoted that 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 sentence. I, I I don't know. So it's very it's very hard. But okay. So we, we don't we don't know why why David Harvey thinks that there is this chronic overaccumulation of capital. Uh, he might just be relying on what Baron and Sweezy say. Do you have? I mean, would you? What, what do you think are the problems of David Harvey's notion and orienting concept over, of overpopulation? Well, I think this like fascination with the circuit of capital and all the disturbances in the circuit of capital, um, that might be nice for a sort of um, labeling all these temporal and spatial uh, parts of our reality. But it doesn't really explain why you would have <clears throat> like chronic blockages in the circuit of capital that would lead to a crisis because capital has this thing called profit that works pretty effectively a lot of the time to coordinate investment so that capital can um, deal with the sort of small-scale disturbances in circulation that inevitably happen in a society. Um, it can move production into different places. It can source material from different places um, it's just by following um, the profit. Um, so it's not clear to me why just saying that capitalism has to grow exponentially um, is enough to explain why it must go into crisis. 
as long as they can find profitable places to invest, I, I, I doesn't not clear to me why there would be a chronic problem of crisis. Um, it seems like we really you really need a theory of um, crisis that relates to specifically to the rate of profit. Um, and you know, Marx has that. He has a theory which explains what forces would cause the rate of profit in society to uh, fall over a long period of time. And um, such a theory could then explain why you could get all sorts of blockages and appearances of, of overaccumulation in the circuit of capital um, in at certain periods, not as a chronic condition, but as a, as a periodic part of a, a cycle of boom and bust. Okay, so but basically you're saying Harvey just does not answer the one question that begs for an answer. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, he tries to talk about it in his first book, Limits to Capital. He really tries to deal with it. But I think he, I mean, basically, I think what he's up against at Limits to Capital is that Marxist of his time thought that Marxist theory of the potential fall in the rate of profit was internally inconsistent or it was, you know, theoretically flawed. And so they couldn't use it to explain a theory of crisis. Um, and so they had to create these like workarounds. And so he has all sorts of very vague workarounds he's trying to do that it's like, oh, Marx, really, he, you know, his falling rate of profit was just sort of a surface appearance of a deeper underlying contradiction between the forces and relations of production. And I'm going to create this more the sort of fixed version of Marx. So we don't have to rely on the, the rate of profit as a ex- explanatory device. But but the result is you get a theory that doesn't really hold together that clearly when you, you put it under a microscope. Right. I think other people have tried in other ways and in some sense been, been more successful. But certainly, you know, you mentioned way back at the start of this um, episode, uh, the, the alleged transformation problem and now the alleged, you know, proof of falsity in Marx's uh, law of the tendential fall and the rate of profit. Uh, I, I spent the many years, actually decades, disproving that, uh, rediscovering yeah, well, other disproofs yeah. and trying to get some recognition and, yeah. and discussion around this. It's been very hard. Well, I just say in response to one of your earlier questions about what sort of made me start to rethink some of these um, secondary source material that I've been reading and their influence in my thought, I mean, your book on the transformation problem and the rate of profit, uh, your book, Reclaiming Marxist Capital, was probably one of the most influential things I read during that time period in my life because um, I read that and I said, oh, well, I can't actually go to Marx and read this for what it is now instead of thinking it has to be fixed by someone else. So it kind of gave me the, it was like I, now I had permission to read Marx and evaluate things on my own terms, or I mean, evaluate things on their own terms with my own head my own thinking mind rather than thinking I needed to only read Marx through interpreters who had fixed the errors in Marx. I'm really glad um, to hear that because that was indeed the purpose of the book. Yeah. You know, I mean, you I said, didn't you think said it very I, well. Yeah. 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 I didn't think I, I didn't think it, I had like permission to do that until I read your book. And then I said, Oh, wait a minute. Well, let me go back and read this for on its own terms. And then I'm going to go back and read what Harvey wrote about this again, now that I've read what Marx wrote about it. And oh, now I don't think Harvey actually makes that much sense anymore, because he was, you know, just kind of making all these very ev- evasive and vague arguments to get around the fact that he couldn't that he didn't think or that he was being told probably, you know, from what he had read that that um, the theory of the rate of profit was uh, was internally inconsistent. Um, 
when you read the limit of capital kind of understanding the debates around um, the Okishio theorem uh, you get you kind of can see it pretty clearly for what what's going on that he bumps up against this Okishio theorem that says that the Marxist theory of crisis is kind of uh, problematic and then Harvey doesn't quite understand it because he's not like a you know a math guy <laughs> and so he's trying to like dance around it and come up with his own solutions that don't require him to like without having to really engage with like the actual sort of uh, theory radical problem itself. Right. Okay, this raises to my mind a very big question. Harvey really does not understand from what you're saying the arguments. He doesn't have the the the, 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 the conceptual basis for judging one way or another whether the Okishio theorem is a legitimate theorem. Yeah, I think so. that that's the impression I I've gotten from reading Limits to Capital is that right. he's aware that it exists. Right. He's you know read plenty of the secondary literature, knows that it's considered to be this mortal blow against Marx's theory of crisis doesn't really have a way for himself to like evaluate and engage with it. And, and so he sort of wants to dance around it. Right. But he doesn't dance to the extent that he takes a position that this Okisho theorem is a real, you know, honest to goodness theorem and that Marx, you know, got it wrong and that Marx has to be fixed. Right. Yeah. And he doesn't know that to be the case himself. Yeah, that that could that could be could be that could, could be. be different. I, mean, from I, that. I, I can't I can't speak. I don't know what he knows. I don't. Right. I'm not, I, I see. I'm not I in see. his brain. I don't know. Right. I can only guess from the way he summarizes arguments and responds to them. I I don't know what he. Right, but 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 you you seem to be saying that in in the text there is an account of what Marx did that is wrong and needs to be fixed, and that that account does not with withstand scrutiny. Yeah. Okay. Which go to me? To me, look, I, I, I you know, I, I don't know David Harvey's work half as well, you know, as, as you do. Uh, maybe not even a quarter as well. Um, but I've seen this kind of thing again and again, uh, with respect to this issue, with respect to the alleged transformation problem, and and so forth and so on. And to me, this raises the question of why, because whether it's true it seems to be but whether it is actually honest to goodness true in david harvey's case it's true in a lot of cases people are taking anti-marx positions without really understanding what they would need to understand to come to some real judgment based on what the arguments are who's right who's wrong so they they, they come to a position um when they don't really have the intellectual resources to come to a position so the question is why what is driving them to come to a position why is that position that they come to like invariably that marx got it wrong and marx needs to be fixed um so those are the questions that, that come to my mind i don't know if i have any brilliant thing answers to that yeah but I can very much understand the sort of insurmountable hurdle that is posed to some people who want to work on Marx's economics, but then run into the Srathian critique, this, by which I mean the you know the this, the transformation problem and the Okishio theorem both come from this Srathian perspective of on, on Marx's value theory, and you know someone like me, I'm not a trained economist, I'm not a mathematician, I can very slowly and painstakingly make my way through, say, Ian Steedman's book, Marx After Straffa, but I'm 
totally at a loss for, say, actually working through Borkowitz's original work on the transformation problem or working through Okishio theorem. I don't have the chops to really um, understand that material. So I am somewhat at a at the mercy of interpreters for understanding that material. And I think a lot of people, um, even people like David Harvey, maybe who are, you know, I, I assume is trained in not in those tr- mathematical and, you know, uh, academic traditions also might bump into this problem that they have to rely on the interpreters because the, the source material is pretty impenetrable. Um, and Andrew, that's why your book, Reclaiming Marxist Capital, was so important and is so important, um, because not only is it very accessible compared to other literature on the topic, but it makes it very clear that the issues here are not um, just about the numbers, but about um, the assumptions behind these equations and matters of textual interpretation. And, and that allows people to make um, their own judgments about um, whether they uh, um, think these uh, the Sraffian critique is relevant to Marx's theory or not without having to surrender to the experts and you know surrender to the theoretical authorities. Yeah, I mean, uh, Marx makes a certain argument. These people put it in a certain mathematic within a certain mathematical formalism, specifically the prices of inputs into production per unit of input has to equal the prices of outputs at the same item, kind of item produced at the end of that period, uh, the input prices have to equal the output prices per unit. They, they impose that assumption. Did Marx impose that assumption? If you impose that assumption, like they do, Marx, Marx's conclusions don't hold. You don't impose that, Marx's conclusions are, are not affected. So the point is, is, is that an error in Marx or is that an error in interpretation? Uh, that's pretty much the, the, the short version, you know, but, but they all come to the conclusion it's Marx's error. So I'm wondering what pressures are there, subjective, objective, you know, communal within the community of, uh, academics, what pressures are there to again and again and again come down on the side of Marx's wrong and we got to fix it. And here, listen to my fix. My fix is the best fix. Why is that happening? People who are saying this are in many cases, probably, I won't say all the cases, but it's very, very common. These are people who actually cannot evaluate the arguments for the reasons that you've said. They they don't understand the, the, the matrix algebra. And you go to some of these original sources like uh, Vladislav von Borgevich, it's almost incomprehensible what he's writing anyway. So, you know, it's a a tough job. Uh, And if that's not your thing, cool. It's not your thing. But then if you don't know enough to have a position, why take a position despite that? Yeah. I mean, I think I know the answer, but uh, it's taken me decades to figure out what the answer is. Which is that within academia, there's a pressure to differentiate your own thinking as a you know unique product to sell yourself as an academic. Yeah, it, but it's it, it's actually double sided because look, it's very easy to differentiate yourself from Marx. You know, I mean, every everybody does it, right? 
You know, I mean, every, every, everybody lodges a critique of Marx. The difference with these people is that they want to have their cake and eat it too. Right. They want to be in the Marx tradition, have some sort of radical bona fides, but also have to say something Yeah, they different. want to say something different from Marx, but have it be in the Marx tradition and to make themselves as if they are the inheritors, the legitimate inheritors of the project, the tradition uh, of Marx. And the only way to do that is to say, ah, Marx made an error, but it's one that can be fixed. And so here is my fix. Right, right. So that, that's what I think is going on. You know, let's go back to this issue where you said, you know, when you originally read David Harvey, you thought it was brilliant. You know, it's great bathroom reading. Uh, and you got something out of it. It was, it, it was something satisfying that you were able to look at all of these events and issues and things going on and situate them within the framework of the circulation of capital or the circuit of capital. And you say there's a lot of other people who, who, are, who are like this. They, they, they don't read for the purpose of understanding whether uh, what they're reading is internally coherent. They read for other things. So, like, what's wrong with that? Why, why are you spoiling their fun? Why is your critique important? Well, it could just be that I'm being mean, uh, but I suspect uh, there's a little more to it than that. Um, I mean, if we really want to be serious about anti-capitalist thinking and anti-capitalist movements and, and creating some alternative to capitalism, then we have to be accountable for our, our ideas and develop them to their... Uh, their the logical extent and engage in debate and um, abandon ways of thinking and modes of thinking that don't arrive at conclusions that are defensible. Um, sometimes I think in inside the bubble of like certain um, left academic bubbles, people aren't necessarily held to that much accountability and because maybe their ideas aren't really, don't have an effect on the world. They're not attached to movements that are that are out there changing the world, and so they can exist in sort of a a bubble and not be held to accountability. But you know, when the Great Recession hit and um, David Harvey you know, got a lot more attention, <clears throat> um, he, for instance, like had this debate I think for a while with Brad DeLong, who's like a you know straight ahead economist. Um, and he, you know, Harvey didn't do that well. I think he wasn't prepared for like being outside of his comfort zone and, and, and his, he didn't really have like the, the chops to defend his, his notions that clearly, I think. And like I said earlier, I think, uh, earlier in my life, I was able to tolerate a much, um, greater level of generality in anti-capitalist thinking. And I thought that all that was really important was to advance sort of a general anti-capitalist sentiment. Um, and that I, I didn't quite see the importance of taking positions on every nuance and detail of these some of these theoretical uh, debates. Um, but I now realize that these theoretical differences really lead to um, big differences in, in how we understand the world and how we envision an alternative to, cap to capitalism or even what we envision capitalism is. Um, 
you know, for instance, if we were to take uh, David Harvey's claim that neoliberalism is a political project, that is that the neoliberal era was a result of this you know, political project by neoliberal thinkers to um, sort of reclaim the social surplus for themselves, um, then that leads us to sort of a social democratic sort of politics where we think that putting different peoples into the heads of capitalist states with different ideas is going to create um, more you know, equitable and, and less um, parasitic societies. But if we take a different view of neoliberalism, that the neoliberal politics of that era were the result of um, long-term economic trends that are outside of the control of human action, that leads us to see a real limitation to that sort of social democratic um, project. So what may seem like a pretty abstract academic argument about like textual interpretation of Marx or about the about how, why crises happen in capitalist society have a real bearing on our immediate conceptualization of um, what it means to be anti-capitalist and what anti-capitalist movements should fight for. And I think that if we're going to really have successful anti-capitalist movements, we need to be um, challenging ourselves and challenging other people who claim to be working in this tradition to be you know, theoretically responsible about the things they, they write and say and to engage critically with each other so we can sort of advance a common understanding about, about these issues. Yeah, let me, let me ask you about that. So you said if we don't have a shared understanding of what capitalism is, uh, we can't agree to get rid of it? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't think that that's actually the case. I think different people can, and I think what, what, this is what exists right now, in fact. It's a description of the actual situation. People have different understandings of the, the societies in which we live, which are capitalists. Um, they have different understandings, partial understandings of what they might want instead. Um, and they don't tend to discuss that future possible non-capitalist future society, but they all do agree we got to change what is. And you can do that even if you don't um, have a shared understanding beyond some very superficial level of what it is that is. You just say, whatever, whatever it is, we don't like it and we can get together, you know, to change it. Um, I, I think that most left politics works on that basis. Would, would you agree, disagree? Yeah, I do think that a lot of left politics operates on that basis, but I don't see how that can lead to an actual movement that replaces capitalism with a, um, a better society. I would think that if we're going to actually do that, we have to have some kind of g common understanding beyond basic generalities about what we're fighting for. Well, I, I, I think so, but I, I, I think that most people don't think so because they stageify the process. Mm -hmm. Okay, so instead of a, a single process of tearing down the old and creating the new, they think, well, the first thing is to get rid of this and that and the other, you know, and then we can think about the future. Yeah, I, I, I think that I think that's a huge, huge error. I think it's plagued. 
uh, the left for a very, very long time. Um, but I, I think that, that to move people away from that kind of thinking, what one has to do is, among other things, to interrogate the, the assumption that that splitting of things into two stages where we can just worry about getting rid of what is without what's going to come after it. We, we have to interrogate that that, that assumption. It's, it's just by no means something to take for granted. You know, uh, the question of our age, and it's been the question of our age ever since uh, the Russian revolution turned into Stalinist counter-revolution. Uh, the question of our age is what happens after the revolution, and that needs to be thought through um, beforehand, and that needs to be, um, one needs to understand that the way in which one changes things is going to influence, if not determine, the outcome of what happens after. Uh, but we, we, we don't we don't get this kind of uh, discussion, really. Um, and I think it's just because people want quick victories, you know? So if, if you if if the the actual revolutionizing of all aspects of society, you know, in a way that's conducive to human flourishing, seems so big and difficult and far off a project, you know, let, let's 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 think about you know getting rid of this government and putting in our people. You know that that seems doable. And right now, we we, we don't have to uh, you know argue about these abstruse points of theory and so forth. Um, and I think the only way to to really attack that is is to say you know yeah you get you get rid of this, this stuff, you know, and one of your your papers or presentations or something, you quoted, uh, who was it? The police? Duran Duran? Uh, what was the quote? Meet, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that, that, that's uh, the who. The who. The who. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's that's what happens, you know? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's Animal Farm, right? Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, 
a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. And that's the end of this episode of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a comment, and leave us a donation. Uh, you can do all those things at marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and all those other places as well.